tonight on Arena. Singer Tommy Blaze on Gatsby and Beyond with the RTE Concert Orchestra and in TV, The Serial Killer's Wife, Season 2 of Reacher and the finale of The Crown. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Tommy Blaze is one of the best known singers in the United Kingdom thanks to his 21 seasons on stage with Strictly Come Dancing. He, along with Tess Daly and Craig Revel Howard, was there from the very start of that television phenomenon. Tommy has worked closely with the RTE Concert Orchestra associate artist Guy Barker over the years and indeed sung in the National Concert Hall with Maestro Barker where he will return on New Year's Eve along with the RTE Concert Orchestra and Big Band for Gatsby and Beyond uh, ringing in the new year for us what promises to be a glitzy celebration of jazz and decadence as we head off into 2020. Delighted to have Tommy Blaze join me uh, on the line now uh, to tell us a little bit more. Surprised that you even have two minutes to draw your breath when Strictly Strictly is actually happening, uh, uh, Tommy. Because I I don't even know how you manage, never mind one week of that, but how many weeks, what week are you in at this stage? 10, 12, something like that? I think this week it's... Uh, transmission 13 but we we do a load of pre-records as well so it's yeah we we started um beginning of august um and and we go right through up until till saturday and we're done then saying that what we're done you know we we toured it again in um, january Mm. so uh, it goes out live on the road then yeah yeah (laughs) and just to give you something to do over the christmas period you decided to come to ireland or to come to dublin uh, to sing a little gig on, on new year's eve yeah, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't miss it. I, I, we were there not so long ago with mm. the Guy Barker big band, and it was fantastic. So when Guy asked me whether I'd like to come over New Year's Eve, I thought, oh, fantastic. I don't normally mm. like going out New Year's Eve. I'm so tired from doing Strictly all year. But yeah. I couldn't miss the opportunity to want to play with the RTE Orchestra as well. It we were, we were fantastic, you know. Yeah. And the and the, the yeah the concert hall's fantastic. So also the the music that we're going to be playing is it's of my favourite era of um, of music. So romantic, everything before the fifties. I just adore. Yeah, I guess know, so, um, the Gatsby and Beyond is is the hint as to the era of music that we're getting here, Tommy. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, um, I think we'll be doing um, stuff like River Stay Away from Your Door, Mini the Mutual, and just big band stuff that is, mm. uh, you know, uh, of a romantic era. And uh, uh, songs were never they've, they've never been the same since. They told a story at that time. Uh, there was not a lot of repetition in the songs. It was a story as it went, you know. So. Yeah, let's, um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Let's have a listen to one of the songs, which might kind of open up um, uh, that we can talk a little bit more about the particular style of it. I know you're a big Louis Armstrong fan, so, <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we start with a little bit of Sachmo? Make me sing another song, Mama. Good luck, baby, with you, Bamboozers and Bamboozers, and may your future you won't fear. There won't be another To treat you like a brother Broken record Take it chief, take it chief, take it chief Take it chief, take it big chief 
And off the big chief goes <laughs> with his with his I think that's a trombone solo coming in there. And um, that's someday you'll be sorry. One of the songs that Tommy Blaze will be singing on New Year's Eve as part of the RT Concert Orchestra and Big Band and Guy Barker's Gatsby and Beyond New Year's Eve celebration. As I, as I was listening to that, Tommy, I don't know how you you know you hear the you hear the bass the, the rhythm section you know bang on the beat the dum 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 and then mm-hmm. if Louis Armstrong not a single chance that there's one. Song, one note that he sings that's anywhere near on the beat. It's all so laid back. It's all got that lovely, easy swing yeah. style to it. How enjoyable is that to sing? It is fantastic. For me, Louis Armstrong, um, as a lot of people know, I adore him anyway. But for me, he, he is um, where rock and roll started. Um, I've got very old recordings of, of, of Louis Armstrong from 1917 up to about 1925. And you can hear the backbeat that James Brown done wow. 30 years after, you know. So he was doing all that funky stuff with the backbeat and New Orleans thing and just all taking normal songs that were sort of around at the time and just throwing the rhythms about and just putting them in places that people never have thought ever thought to put them. You, you know, that you hear the song, you had to copy it exactly the same, but he thought, no, I'll just grab this, turn it on its head. And um, and the joy in his voice as well, you know. Yeah. It's just, it, he, he transmits transmit this absolute energy that is um, that's so fantastic. My favourite ever song of his is um, La Vie en Rose, his oh, version right. of that. Yeah. Which, I ha- yeah, I play almost every day. On, um, on my wall as I come down the stairs, there's a, a chart with a graph on it. And if I put my phone on it as it go, goes past, it automatically plays <laughs> that song. And it's almost every day. So it really is, it just makes me happy. Oh, what, a, what a way to start your day. Have you ever heard the, the, Absolutely. Rec- have you ever heard the recording of Lottie Lenya trying to sing Mac the Knife with Louis Armstrong? No, I haven't, no. <laughs> she she can't get off the beat, you know. She just, that's it, she's rigidly on the beat and the shark has teeth like razor and she can't move at all. And he's trying constantly <laughs> to get her to swing it and she just can't manage it at all. It's well worth seeking that out uh, if oh, you can. Oh, I've got to have a look at yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. A yeah, friend of mine would have said she swings like a rusty gate. <laughs> there's a touch of that about it for sure. There's not a, there's not a swing to be heard uh, anywhere w- within that. You know, one of the things that I, I suppose... It, 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 it makes it sound, the big band sound has that, you know, it makes it sound easy. It makes it look easy, uh, but it never is that. To get that kind of ease, what kind of state of mind do you need to be in to be able to sit back? Because uh, it has to be a very laid back field a lot of the time, doesn't it? Yeah, so, and you're, you're, you're fighting against a big band. <laughs> which um, the dynamic the dynamics are, are quite amazing. I remember the first time I ever did sing with the big band. It was a bit of a shock, um, and it actually throws you the, the first couple of times till you start, as you say, sitting in it and and relaxing uh, with the music, and then you start to feel um, it, it talks to you, and hopefully you bounce back mm. um, within them rhythms. And uh, it, for me, it's singing with the big band is the ultimate. Yeah. You know. And what is the what what was that shock? That initial shock, Tommy, the first time that you did it. How would you define what it is? The, you know, the, the the surprise that you got. Um, of of hearing the band c- c- come right back at me mm. for the first time. You mean just the power? Um, yeah, yeah, the power of it. I guess it was the power of it as well, and it also threw me pitch wise. I'm thinking, oh, am I singing in key here? And and you just have to um, just relax and listen mm. to the music. I think um, the more you listen to it. 
um, the better you can you, you sort of sit in the pocket of the music. But it it, it it is absolutely joyous. You sing a line, there's always something bouncing back at you, you know, yeah. um, and loads to feed off. And um, and if they're really good arrangements, they they some they can make you cry, you know, just some lovely horn arrangements and stuff. But I, on um, Strictly last weekend for the pro dance, I sang Nat King Cole's um, When I Fall in Love. Wow. which is just wrapped around strings you know it's this lovely simple simple rhythm section but this string section just oh just grabs you and it just makes you sing 10 times better than if you was just sitting at the piano and stuff you know and i'm wondering yeah. how, how different is it when you're singing for a dancer you know as opposed to <laughs> opposed to singing with the big band because the dance demands something different and I know that one of the songs you're going to be singing as part of the New Year's Eve gig is Minnie the Moocher the Cab Calloway song that's one that has mm-hmm. you've sung a few times over the 21 seasons of Strictly yeah that has been that has been bounced a few times around Strictly in very different formats mm. so sometimes it might not be a Cab Calloway version it could be um, one of the modern versions um, because it's Strictly Come Dancing. So we, we, I just treat it with the same approach, you know, um, sit back, relax, learn it, and just sing it uh, as best you can, you know. I, I, I always love it when um, uh, uh, the dancers dance to, to traditional music that isn't as electrified or as modern. Um, but I still enjoy that as well. But when it's just yeah. um, strings and, you know, just instruments, that sort of um, don't need to be plugged in. Yeah, and you, you, you met Cab Calloway's, I think you met Cab Calloway's daughter about 20 years ago. I did, yeah, about 20, 20 odd years ago. Um, she invited me to come and watch her in a play and she was playing Billie Holiday. Wow. And, um, and, and it, which was just absolutely fascinating, you know. And we 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 were chatting, chatting about her dad and everything else. And I just thought, wow, what a history, you know, because he he is of that era, isn't he? You yeah. know. And, you know just yeah. And then this version, yeah. this this version that we have, I think, brings us right back to that that to that early period of the music that you'll be singing on New Year's Eve. This is Minnie the Moocher, Cab Calloway version. <laughs> She loved him, though he was cocky. He took her down to Chinatown, and he showed her how to kick the gong around. Hide, 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 hide. And I'm guessing, Tommy Blaze, when you're singing that song in the National Concert Hall on New Year's Eve, you will be expecting the chorus, uh, the, the audience, to sing right back at you for that section. Absolutely, yeah. They are the backing vocals that night. <laughs> <laughs> the whole audience. Yeah, I think the last time we played there, we had them up singing and dancing. It was so lovely, yeah. yeah. yeah so I'm really looking forward to it, especially with songs like that. You you can't not sing that answer. If, if, if I was to sing that at you, you're just going to throw it right back I, at me. He kind of has that feeling off it right enough and I'm, I'm guessing that's what it, that's what will be happening on New Year's Eve as I say but there are other singers with you and there are a couple of kind of ensemble singing pieces as well which is something closer I suppose to your your Saturday night experience on, on Strictly isn't it that kind of three or four singers often at the same time yeah and then we all get together and do um, a couple of numbers together and, and um, yeah I enjoy, enjoy it when we all um, half the time we sort of 
when we start the rehearsals, we don't know what we're doing by the end of the rehearsals. We're all there, you mm. know. So it's um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. And um, can you it's get... always always good fun working with Vanessa. And and when you when you get in stuck into the middle of uh, of the strictly run. Do you get attached to certain dancers? Do you find yourself, say, if they're, oh, I love this song and I'm singing for there, and the next thing is they're in the dance-off and the next thing is they're gone. Does that, does, can that be an emotional experience for you as much as it is for the people who are gone? I'm, I'm probably not as much for the people that are gone because I know I'm going to be back next week doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, a lot of the time we, we get... Um, because we work so hard on mm. uh, on the show, it's um, some t- on Saturdays we're on the floor from sort of this this Saturday coming. We start at eight thirty in the in the morning, and we're probably finished around about nine o'clock. I think we come off air, but when we normally come off air, we do the results show. So by then you've been singing all day. You know you've rehearsed it uh, two two or three times with every dancer. You've done a dress run, you've done the live show. And your voice is dropped, um, and then all of a sudden, a couple of songs might come back in the in the dance off. Yeah, and um, even though we, we we love singing them, part of there's a little tiny bit of you going, "Oh, I pray it's not my song that comes back," <laughs> you know, <laughs> just because you've got nothing left, you know. But yeah. we, we do end up. Uh, 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 I think we're just tired by that time of uh, of night, you know. Absolutely. And had you any idea? You know, 20, 21 seasons ago that here you would be sitting just it's you Craig Revel Howard uh, and Revel Howard and um, who, who's the other person who's who's been there from the test 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 lady who's been there from the very start Anton Anton has been there yes in diff- but he's been in different roles I guess yeah but he's still been there from the beginning yeah. as a dancer I remember him being on the on the first show I think he was on the pilot as well um, I, I, I did do the pilot um, it was really funny getting the call because a friend of mine said, oh, Laurie Holloway, who's the, the, the then musical director, is putting together this band for a show based on Come Dancing, which I used to watch as a kid mm. with with my family around the house. And, and, um, and they said, oh, they're basing it on like a celebrity-based thing. And uh, do you want to come along and do uh, sing a few songs at the at the pi- on, on the pilot? And, you know, so we did. They, they liked the pilot and then they'd done a... a, a uh, recording of the first episode. I mean, I, this is funny. I remember saying to Len Goodman or Len saying to me, "What are you doing next week, Tom?" And I thought, "Oh, I don't, I don't really know. What are you doing?" He said, "Oh, I don't know, but I, and I don't think this is going to last that long, do you?" <laughs> there you go. Yeah, God uh, rest him, the lovely Len Goodman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he really he brought that kind of uh, the elder statesman. He was such a such a gentle soul, really. Even when he was telling people they were dancing terribly badly. He could do it with. Yeah, he'd done it with, in a lovely way. Didn't he? Yeah, I was wondering how many people wanted to sing to Crave Rebel Hobart at different different points along the way. Someday you'll be sorry. <laughs> the song that we listened to at the top. You might sing that to him. Maybe uh, I should dedicate that to just to Craig Rebel <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to finish up by by listening to River Stay Away from My Door. And I often think with this song, it's it's the um, it's the Sinatra version that we have, uh, Tommy. I often think with this. Song, mm-hmm. You know, I know it's probably as much about there's a metaphor going on here about River Stay Away From My Door, but there's quite a serious, if you think of where we are with COP, uh, the, the climate change talks and all the rest of it going on at, at the moment, River Stay Away From My Door has a kind of a frightening aspect to it as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, 
especially when you know, since what's happened in New New Orleans and what's like you say, what's going on around the world. <laughs> yeah, um, it is fantastic um, piece of music, and I, I think you can take it loads of ways with this one. Yeah, I'm sure River is as much about love or about heartbreak as as it is about an actual river flowing up to your door. Uh, Tommy, it's lovely <laughs> to speak with you this evening. Um, oh, thanks get... for having me, Sean. Really enjoyed it. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to get over there New Year's Eve. I'm really looking forward to that. Well, yeah, do, do, do have a little rest at some point over the <laughs> Christmas period. Do I've I... got three days off, so I'm really happy. Ah, sure then. I, I was <laughs> going to feel sorry for you for a minute. Three days? God, get away out of that. I've got three, yeah, three days off. And then I think when after New Year's Eve... Um, yeah, three days off before we start rehearsals again for the tour, um, which goes on till mid um, mid February, and yeah. then I go on my own tour around the UK, um, which I'm really looking forward to. Good um, to be busy. That, good to be yeah. busy, I guess. Tommy. It's good to be busy. It really is. You know, doing something you love, I think, uh, keeps you young. And, it certainly um, does you, that. Lovely. You can't get better than that. Thanks a million for being with us this evening, Tommy. Safe, safe trips and all the rest and all that you're going to be doing. Oh, my pleasure, Sean. Total pleasure. Thank uh, you. Thanks a million. That's Tommy Blaze. And we'll finish up with a little bit of Frank Sinatra and River. Stay away from my door. River, stay away from the door. Don't come up any higher. I'm so alone. Leave the bed and the fire That is all I own I ain't breaking your heart Don't start breaking my heart River, stay away from the door River, stay away from my door. The Frank Sinatra version there. Tommy Blaze will be the one who'll be singing it on New Year's Eve in the National Concert. I was listening to, to Lyric, RT Lyric FM on the way in and Lorcan Murray was talking to Paul Harriet. Seemingly, Paul Harriet will be presenting the concert on the night and it'll be broadcast live on New Year's Eve if you can't get to the gig. But the thing is, you dress up to go to this gig for the Gatsby and beyond. Put on your best bib and tucker, put on your 1920s gear, your flapper gear if you have it and off you go to the National Concert Hall on New Year's Eve. But I'd say you'd want to be quick to get tickets for that. nch.ie or rte.ie forward slash concert orchestra will give you all of the details on that event. Now, joining me in studio is Jen Gannon and we'll have a look at what to watch this week on TV. We'll be starting off with a brand new thriller based on the best-selling novel The Serial Killer's Wife by Alice Hunter. Annabelle Scully is Beth Fairchild, a woman whose idyllic world falls apart when her husband is arrested for murder. Uh, we'll also be looking at another series based on a best-selling book. This time it's Lee Child's long-running series, Reacher, which centres on the titular former army police major. And yes, it is the same Reacher from the Tom Cruise film, but this Reacher is played by the fast and furious star, Alan Ritchie. And finally, we look at yeah, what they're saying is the season finale of The Crown. We'll see, which focuses on the young Prince William and his relationship with Kate Middleton. Jen Gannon is with me in studio. Let's start with the serial killer's wife. <laughs> kind of mm. does what it says on the tin, this one, doesn't it? 
It's um, on Paramount um, uh, Friday, the December the 15th. I think all four episodes or the first yeah. four episodes the are first, all four. Yeah. First four. Yeah. First four episodes will be appearing on December the 15th. Who is the serial killer's wife and why are we seeing it yeah. from her point of view? We're like, I mean, as you said, it's the based on Alice Hunter's book, um, which is that kind of specific genre of popular thriller, mm. like your Gone Girls, your Girl on the Train. So she is quote unquote the serial killer's wife so you're in this small kind of sleepy English village and where there is a very definite hierarchical class structure it's still inbuilt so mm. you have you know Beth Fairchild she is the doctor's a doctor's wife and she's trying to do her best to keep up with the Joneses in this community and she wants to be a pillar of the community she's a new implant um, you feel that she's very sketchy about her background mm. as in she lies about where her mother is. She says her mother is in Ibiza and then her mother turns up at the door in a caravan, a kind of ramshackle caravan where one of the neighbours is not too impressed when she spies her. So that's the kind of mm. backbiting neighbours you're getting involved with. And is Tom the husband? Tom is the husband and basically we first meet Beth. She's hosting a 40th birthday party for well, her for, husband. For, for Tom. For so Tom. It's Dr. Tom Fairchild. Dr. Tom Fairchild <laughs> played by Jack Farthing. It's his 40th birthday. Uh, Annabelle is doing all of the things that Jenna's man mentioned to try to keep up with the Joneses and I'd say try to keep one step ahead of the Joneses mm. even is what she's trying. In walks Angela Griffin playing the part of D.A. Edgeworth. She has some news. Really, uh... I, I don't know what's going on. Excuse me. Tom Fairchild I am arresting you on suspicion of the murder of Katie Asquith. You do not have to say anything but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned. Sorry, is this a joke? Later, rely on in court. You can't do this. Any evidence you give, anything you say may be used in evidence can, against can't you. Can't you do something, Maxwell? Excuse me, excuse me. Maxwell Collins, Dr Fairchild's lawyer. He's in no fit state to be questioned right now. OK, then we'll let him sleep it off and we'll proceed in the morning, please. Not without no, his lawyer present. Just take him away. Come on. OK, I'm walking with you. Excuse me, can't you do this tomorrow? We have got a warrant to search the house. So we are going to ask everybody here to provide your information to the officers and then vacate immediately. Sorry, right now. Simmons, do you mind going and starting upstairs, No, please? excuse me, can you just uh, wait, please? Can you start wait, in the kitchen? Thank really you. necessary? A young woman has been murdered. So anything that helps me find the killer is very necessary, don't you think? Well, she means business for sure. <laughs> Does Angela Griffin there as D.I. Edgeworth. This, that's a clip from the serial killer's wife. Jen Gannon has been watching it for us. <laughs> The music's telling me that this is very oh, tense. It is, yes. <laughs> and, and, and it's like that. I mean, throughout it, I mean, that's one way to, you know, end a party anyway, by bursting in and arresting. Well, the, yeah, if somebody is arrested for being a killer, boy, yeah, yeah. it kind of stops the crack. It does. Enough. It does. But, um, you know, so she's there to, to arrest, obviously, Tom, saying that, that there was the murder of a girl, Katie, who was, who worked in Tom's surgery and then was fired. And then there's also the disappearance of another girl, Alison, as well. So that's what the chatter and the gossip has been about mm. in the small village. And then obviously the minute that Maxwell, the lawyer, says, you're not suggesting there's a serial killer here, there's a knock on the door and then all hell breaks <laughs> loose with him, Tom being arrested. So it's very yeah. much set up sledgehammer style immediately. It's like an Agatha Christie novel in that way where you have a lot of, you know, potential suspects at this party and what's going to happen next. And, and then it's, you know, kind of going from Beth's point of view in the way of could she, can she trust this man? I mean, I can't give away too much because yeah. obviously there's a lot of spoilers out there, but it's really like, it, just because a man maybe plays away at home, does that mean he's 
a terrible person? Does that mean he's responsible for a murder? That's where the, the series kind of kicks off. Yeah, but I often, there is a thing about adaptations of, as I, mm. you know, crime fiction books uh, of a certain, of, of the, of typical of the genre, genre where, you know, yeah. where you want to be, you're, it's about turning the page, mm. short chapters turn the page yeah, and, and you don't want to stop because yeah. it's making you literally, it's a page turner. You can't get away from it. Maintaining that on television and maintaining that as part of a drama series, that, that demands something else. It does and this is where it kind of falls down for the series because I've seen this pattern with uh, like you say those kind of dramas like something like Eve Hewson's that vehicle that she did for Netflix Behind Her Eyes or that psychosexual thriller that you had with Charlie Murphy earlier mm-hmm. on this year Obsession there is this it's like an AI drama almost because they have like you said this overbearing music and then there's no natural sound after the soundtrack stops yeah. then there's the Fifty Shades of Grey style sexual antics that are always in it and this over reliance and over concentration on the plot and plotting getting to the next plot point rather at the expense of characterization. Uh, right. and that's where it's a shame because it's a huge issue Good cast here though It's a great know. cast because I mean Jack Farthing is coming off for me one of the best TV shows of this year Rain Dogs and to see him in this role you think it's going to be a meaty role for him he does really well at playing these awful poshos that he did mm. in Poldark as well we've seen him in yeah. Poldark do the same thing and he's so good at it like you do you love to hate him and with this um, and you know Angela Griffiths is great we've seen her solid work in something she's like playing Lewis the, the, the police officer yeah here, and yeah. she's playing a police woman again like she did in Lewis and, and you know she's good in stuff like Waterloo Road but they're just not giving the sufficient story to work with I mean it's gripping in moments but it's not enough like we have seen it could have been a great story where you see the anguish of one woman not being able to trust her husband and that paranoia that grows and we've seen mm. dramas like this kind of drip feed those moments something like Broadchurch was a, a masterwork of that you know with Olivia yeah. Coleman but this is very much concentrating on preposterous plot points that they just have to reach and gallop towards rather at the expense of actually getting to know these people and making them three dimensional so you don't really care there's no tension there yeah. And there's a lot of show, instead of showing you, there's a lot of people just feeding you information and telling you, which is not, it doesn't make a good drama in that way. No, it doesn't. And I I was saying four episodes from December the 15th. Is Mm. it four episodes in total? four episodes in total. total. It's a tight miniseries, which is why it's so unfortunate. They could have done so much more with it to make it, to give you that paranoia and that, you know, tension that fuels those type of dramas. Instead, it it just goes on one note. There is no surprises in that way. Now, there is twists, I will say, but you see them coming, I think. All right. Okay. So, not a ringing endorsement I think there for the serial killer's wife but available from Friday December the 15th for all four episodes on Paramount Plus let's move on to Reacher season two which will be on uh, Prime Video from this Friday Um, it's described as a throwback to 90s testosterone bloated action films and TV shows I described it as that and it's true I was wondering (laughs) who I was quoting it's you yes and Michael Pope of The Galaxy um, lead singer Mm. he describes Reacher as the vanilla gorilla and that's basically what he is like he is like the Hulk he's like the Hulk without being green and I mean look the kind of show it has this great irreverence and this great knowingness to it the reason why you know Reacher was this surprise hit when season one came out I don't think a lot of people expected to like it because you have the Tom Cruise film like you said and they're like I'm I'm getting confused between these characters are we starting all over again what's happening the difference here is this Reacher unlike the Tom Cruise film it's actually fun and it knows it's giving you a knowing wink Um, even with season two the poster has 
you know, that actor Alan Richardson with his back to the camera and it just has Reacher's back. I mean, they know what they're doing. <laughs> right. They know what they're doing. So they, they are, they're poking fun at the yeah. genre as much as playing the genre itself. So therefore, because uh, when I listen when I listened to this clip, I thought this is a little bit on the nose. But given, I think if you listen to it with the years that would, that would come mm. off what you've just said, there's a you, you got to take it that there's a bit of fun here. I think there's a bit of fisticuffs. Oh, at the indeed. Beginning. Now, there's a child in the back of a car and a woman being abducted. There is that is. as much and as I need to know here? Well, he, basically, he just smashes through a windscreen to, to oh. save a child. And oh, well, don't be telling us anymore. Let, let, okay. let, let the clip, <laughs> let the clip, let the clip show us everything. <laughs> here we go. Don't turn around. I can help you. Keep taking out money. That minivan to my left, that yours? Yes. Just for clarity, you've been carjacked, right? My child is in the back seat. Gun? <laughs> Stay here. This won't take long. Come on. Your mom better hurry the fuck up, kid, or this is gonna go bad for both of you. <laughs> Hi. Want to see your mom? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, baby. That guy will be out for a while. Go in the bank, call the cops, give him these guns in the car. Wait. Who are you? Someone who prefers not getting involved. <laughs> That's rough justice. <laughs> there you go. That's a scene from uh, Reaching My Apologies. I meant to warn about the the broad F um, very quickly into that clip. Uh, Alan Richardson as as Reacher. Uh, is it Maria Sten that we heard in the midst of all? Was she the woman or is she a different no, character? No, she's a different character. She's a colleague of Reacher. Oh, she's so, a colleague, colleague yes. of Reacher. But you can see, like, he's it's just on the edge of pastiche, really, there, Definitely. isn't it? Definitely. It's not trying to be clever or you know, ironic in that way. It mm. really is that throwback to those, you know, films used to get out or see on a Saturday night on ITV late yeah. at night or get out of the video shop and it's the bodies are clearly outlined and everything gets resolved in a neat half an hour if you're watching on TV or 90 minutes if you're watching, you know, a film. And like we were saying, you know, the Ron Seal of TV shows, it, it does exactly what it says yeah, on the yeah. tin and it's not, it's not sophisticated at all, but it's so enjoyable. There's something about the way that it does it. It does it in this smooth way where you feel like you're in a safe pair of hands because it's there, cliche doesn't exist in Reacher in that way. It's just oh, we ha- we have seen we've been in so many complicated TV shows and so many complex TV shows where everything is you can't trust anybody you don't know where the tables yeah. are going to turn. This is the goodies are outlining. The goodies are the good guys and exactly. the baddies are the bad guys. There's no He is no an all-American hero yeah. you know just trying to do I his never best. Never did I think I would hear <laughs> Jen Gannon uh, absolutely recommending a 90s testosterone bloated action film. Yeah, I mean look it's not Michelin star telly. It's not Michelin star quality. This is not what you're savouring. This is what you're watching at Twixmas, that in-between time and relishing it, enjoying it, binging it's, it. It's a good burger. It is. It's a good <laughs> burger at a chain restaurant and sometimes that's just what you need, especially at this time of year. I yeah, think. when you've been eating too much turkey. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a little bit less will, will always go a long way. All right, let us uh, move on to... Uh, we did play the clip, yeah. No, we, are, we are previewing, let yes. me be clear, we are previewing viewing um, the finale of The Crown. Um, 
I suppose anybody who's watching it knows exactly where where we are. We're right up to Kate and Mm. William. That's Kate Middleton and and William, the early days of their courtship. Mm. And I think, you know, after the shock of Ghost Diana, Elizabeth Dubuque's Ghost Diana that we've seen. Yes, um, you weren't happy about it at all. Very not. I mean, I I think there's a cautious thing about making Diana this fictional character and then perhaps putting words in the mouth of a dead person. Mm. And I, I, I just didn't really understand why Peter Morgan would have taken that turn, especially that conversation that Diana has with Charles on the plane where she said he was a good husband and he looked very handsome when he went to see her. I just thought, this is tipping tipping the line a bit for me. And mm. I think in the post, I think the crown should have ended with the death of Diana. I don't think we need to see this tale end of the monarchy as in where it's going in the future, because we know we've seen it. We've been there. Uh, we, we It's yesterday's newspapers, basically. And you, you do get the impression, I mean, it was easy in terms of Queen Elizabeth. I mean, particularly she was coming towards the end of her reign and her mm. life as the series was coming to, to the part you're talking about there. There was great affection for her among the British people, respect for her because of her age as much as, as anything else and the long time she had spent on the throne. You kind of feel with the new generation that they're, they're, they're doing, aren't they great? Aren't they really great? Aren't they squeaky clean great? And I'm, I'm sensing that they, the finale might leave us. I think it draws it out too much because you were going from, let's say, you know, the very first season of The Crown where it was pomp and ceremony mm. and a lot of the audience were learning about these things for the first time and maybe, you know, hadn't been in depth in, in the history of the royal yeah, family. Yeah. But you're going from that right up to what Kate and Will's, you know, liking each other on Facebook or whatever. And it just feels very empty. You know, it feels like, I, but in a way, I suppose that is a fitting end to the crown when you have the sovereign, the head of state, national identity replaced by this, you know, nameless, faceless technology, I suppose that, you know, yeah. everyone is head yeah. of their own fiefdom in that way. But I just feel that the legacy of the crown is possibly tarnished by just having an end on this relationship between William and Kate that we have seen ourselves. We've seen through rolling news. And Mm. do we really need to go back there? Is there anything that you can say? What is the future of the monarchy? I don't know if they're they're going to try and answer that question in any great detail. Yes, in the the final episode. Yeah. And, you know, you're leaving out the Meghan and Harry story of it all. I was going to say that to you. This has been referred to as the finale, but it wouldn't be the first time that we've been told that the the, season, the series had ended. Is there a, is there a spin-off here? Maybe Peter, about Peter Morgan the, the Spare. Couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It might be, you know, and, and we don't know for certain what what is the future in that way, but this as a, a whole is now over. And I do think The Crown is... It has a strange legacy because it was a very myopic, obviously British centric take on history. Seasons, the early, you know, seasons one, two, three. They Mm. really there was something very strong about them. It felt like I feel like it's the last gasp of that style of prestige drama that Netflix was so very good at for a while, and now we're into a brave new world where what will be next? What we have all those shows ending, The Crown, Succession. You know, they're the the big main players. They used to be massive awards winners, and Mm. it's a where do we go from here now? What is the future? Will it change? And I, I think, you know, there has been 
brilliant performances along the years in The Crown. Someone like Josh O'Connor, you know, Emma Corrin, Erin Doherty as the young Princess Anne, Olivia Colman. Who knew Olivia Colman could play the Queen? And she yeah. was so, so yeah. very good at it. And there was a lot of controversy around that, but she was brilliant. Um, you know, with someone like Dominic West, he played Fred West and Prince Charles. <laughs> Versatility. Yes, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And so I, I do think there, there Vanessa, has a lot. name I can't, whose surname won't come to you, who played Kirby, Prince Margaret. Yeah, Prince yeah. Kirby, who and, played and, Princess Margaret. Yeah, and there has been, so the, it has given us a lot in that way to chew over in with regards to great Irish and British yeah. character actors. But at the same time, I think ending it on this kind of damp squib, it's a poor note to end something that started so well and was so garlanded by critics and but, fans alike. And then to end it like this feels a little bit disappointing. I bet you'll still watch the finale. 100% I'll be on the couch eating my roses watching it. <laughs> <laughs> what else would you be doing? Exactly. Other, other than that. So I think um, the one that you're sending us to quite definitely out of the three is is Reacher. But yeah, if you haven't seen enough, early, epi- early seasons of the of the Crown, it might be worth going I back. I think this is the time of year where you can take stock. And if there is TV shows that, you, you know, have a gap to fill, you know, this is the time to do it. And I would definitely say season three and four of The Crown are probably up there with the best. That yeah, and done. you kind of know the history anyway. So you can probably... If anybody can make, you know, if you feel sympathy for Prince Charles, Josh O'Connor has really done his job there as a young Prince Charles. Yeah, and that's was, worth it. His performance alone is worth when he, it. When he was prince as opposed to... Yeah, um, king. Now yeah. king. All right. Um, You'll be busy over the Christmas period, yeah. I'm guessing, Jen. I think we'll be speaking to you before Christmas anyway. You're doing an end of year thing, I yeah. think, with this um, around the 22nd uh, of the programme before the, yes. before the Christmas season. So we will speak to you then. I don't need to wish you a happy Christmas this evening. Uh, that's Jen Gannon and the three that we were speaking about. Um, the Crown, obviously available on Netflix. Uh, reach. When is the, f- uh, the finale going out or when the will it be available? The Crown is Thursday, December 14th and that's all five episodes dropping then. Right, so the, the final five episodes yeah. will be there. Um, Re- Re- Se- Reacher season two on Prime Video from this Friday and before that we were talking about the serial killer's wife Paramount Plus from Friday, December the 15th. Four episodes. Irish artist Sarah Purser is mainly known for her portraiture, particularly the images of high society. As she said herself, I went through the British aristocracy like the measles. An exhibition at the National Gallery of Ireland, uh, Sarah Purser Private Worlds, presents a different, non-official side of Purser's work, highlighting more intimate scenes of domestic life. Jess Fahey has been to see the show. She joins me now. Um, as I say, Jess, when we think of Purser, we're thinking portraiture. Uh, where did this other domestic side, where does it fit in to the overall body of work? So uh, ultimately, it's because she had to earn a living that she becomes a portrait painter. That was mm. the best way to make money. Um, but you sort of feel that through her art education, she ends up being over in Paris at the Academy Julien for about six months um, when she herself is 30. And this then leads her to see what other artists are doing, what types of works are being exhibited. And at that time, it tended to be these scenes of either domestic life or scenes of people at work, you know, sort yeah. of more realist types of subjects. So in the portraiture of of the British aristocracy, because they are, are certainly the landed gentry in, in terms of Ireland, 
was there a side there where for work reasons she had to she had to be paint nice pictures of these people there was no warts and all involved absolutely and you do find that actually with her work that there can be a massive difference between one portrait and another of the same person so a really good example of that are two that are in the Hugh Lane that are of Maud gone and one she looks beautiful and in a dress and very the commissioned polite. one one's guesses exactly that's the exhibition piece so that's yeah. the one that everyone's going to see and then the other one is this wild pastel that really shows you much more of Maud Gone and who she was and her character. So it shows you the way an artist, I suppose, is restricted by those kind of parameters of society and what they're meant to do. I guess it's a bit like in terms of, you know, official portraits and snapshots. It's it's that kind of it's that kind of difference of a viewpoint. Absolutely. And like that, she always said that, you know, Someone like Maud Gone was a friend who becomes a sitter. In other cases, a sitter might become a friend. And as she got to know them mm. better, she was better able to paint them. And she used to nickname the posthumous portraits that she was sometimes employed to paint as the deaders. And they were her <laughs> least favourite because you couldn't get any personality from <laughs> the deaders. A dead portrait. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm guessing then um, we're going to tweet uh, one of the images now for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> at RTE Arena on X as we have to say now do you X things on X or do you still tweet them I think you still tweet them on X um, this is a portrait of uh, Purser herself by uh, I might no I'm, I'm thinking of the wrong one here this is Lady with Rattle was actually was the first thing that I wanted to that I wanted to, to uh, tweet Lady with Rattle you might explain who's in this picture it's the rattle thing that kind of gets me in this particular portrait. Yeah, it's a fascinating one because the woman in it is Mary Maud Sturgis, who is a friend of Purser's and she stayed with that family when she was over in Surrey, having had a great honour of exhibiting at the Royal Academy, mm. which, you know, shows you how famous she was at that point or how yeah. well received. But the thing I love about the painting is it's this incredibly well-dressed lady who's holding a rattle that's so... You know, um, in Congress, it looks like she's bored to tears. It was a really odd kind of because it was. It was only when I saw the actual title, mm. "A Lady Holding a Rattle," that she is holding a rattle. It's so out of place. I would almost argue that it's a rare portrait of moments of boredom in motherhood, which is an unusual type of subject, <laughs> mm. uh, where it looks like she's supposed to be entertaining a child, but is, you know, really not having a great time herself. And there's a, there's a, I can only read part of the dedication at the bottom. Homage, respect. Is it a it, yeah, it's just dedicated to her husband, Julian. So he's the one who gets the gift of the painting of his wife looking bored, holding a rattle. Yeah. And, and again, this is a this is a brave type of portrait to make rather mm -hmm. than the the absolutely complimentary one. Yeah, and it can only be done in that kind of comfort of a domestic sphere with people she knows. So a very good comparison to this would be examples of paintings by Edward Manet, in particular paintings he made of mm. the artist Berth Morisot, who incidentally was friends with Sarah Purser, and she looks equally bored. And you often get the sense of how uncomfortable women's clothing were, because if you look how sort of far leaned back the same woman uh, Mary Maud is in another painting in the exhibition, which is called A Visitor, she's leaning really, really far back on the settee mm. and the couch that she's on pr presumably because she can't move with the corsets that women had to wear and the, the sort of obviously she was moving in the higher echelons or the higher income bracket of, of British society at the time how effective a communicator was how much of a socialite was she or she, was there an aspect to her that just could fit in anywhere 
So she was um, quite a contradiction in many ways. So she was in- incredibly generous, very friendly, but also very sharp, very quick witted and could be a little cruel maybe in some of her comments. Mm. But people who understood her enjoyed her. And although she does end up being hostess sometimes in you know, society things for some of her brothers, ultimately she's an independent woman, unmarried, makes her own money as a professional. And then she has salon gatherings, which were the second Tuesday of every month. And what sort of people, were these in Dublin? That, mm, that they, and what sort of house. people would have been there? So it would be people like Douglas Hyde, WB Yeats. Um, you would have uh, artists as well that would show up. You had people like Jane Barlow and other writers. Uh, also, she tended to have sort of people that could be on either side of, say, land league questions because she knew the aristocracy, mm. but she was very good friends with Michael Davitt and he would be there. So it's a fascinating thing to kind of consider. Um, and Stephen Gwynne commented that it was where a young man would have the privilege of having their wits sharpened by going along to Sarah Purser because she didn't take any nonsense all right. at all. And she really disliked all WB8 spiritualism and things like that and used to get, you know, some of her nieces and nephews to talk to the more boring guests uh, on any of these occasions. Um, what do we you, 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 this exhibition I believe Jess gives us an aspect of Purser's work which is referred to as a genre scene. What do we mean by that? So genre scene just means a scene of everyday life. So people not posed, not a history painting, nothing that's based on any sort of narrative. I think if I tweet Le Petit Dijeuner, mm-hmm. we'll get a perfect example of that. So uh, at RTE Arena, if you want to see this on X, uh, Sarah Purser, the Le Petit Dijeuner from 1881. And it is what it says. It's a, a lunch. It's a little lunch, a snack. Mm-hmm. And it's again, Boredom seems to be a, a great subject for her. Yeah, it's something that I think is not just in her. This, work. this is a woman sitting. It could be in Beauty's Cafe. That's what yeah, it looks like. It in does fact. actually. Yeah, yeah. It looks more like a cafe, but I think yeah. it might actually be their interior. And the thing about it is, at this time, it becomes more common to have you know these everyday scenes where women are not smiling in mm. these paintings. And even though we know who the woman is, it was a flatmate of hers, um, Maria Feller, who was an illegitimate daughter of an Italian count and this beautiful musician and singer. And her and Sarah Purser and two other artists lived together in a flat in Paris. Uh, But this was painted a few years later when she revisited. Um, But something like this, I think, kind of shows you that there's a move on in a way from just showing women as pretty ornaments and instead showing something a little bit more interesting. Yeah, and uh, the irony is, I would say uh, from a portrait like that, you maybe you project things on to the sitter. There's a bit of that going on, but you certainly have a sense that you're seeing more of the actual person than some kind of presented version of the person. Yes, absolutely. And that's what it, that realist with a capital R is sort of meant to do. So it's not just about looking realistic. Mm. It's about showing the real world. And someone like Corbet, for example, in the middle of the 19th century, he called for artists to paint their own world from their own point of view. That's exactly what Purser is doing. And, you know, People aren't always smiling. No. <laughs> when I look at this, it reminds me of you know, the amount of times in life when a stranger has said, you know, cheer up, it may never happen. And you kind of get a little affronted that yeah. someone's, you know, telling you what to do at your own face. Oh, you're talking about the realities of life. Mm. That's one thing that we, we can't ignore in the case of, of Sarah Purser. Obviously, the, the gender issue was a mm. huge issue for a, a female artist at this point in time. Absolutely. And she was extraordinarily successful against it all. I think one of the stories that sort of really highlights it is that she was related to Walter Osborne. He was a younger cousin mm. of hers, 11 years her junior. 
and he becomes a full member of the Royal Hibernian Academy when he's in his 20s. She's 76 years old when she's finally made a full member and she's the first woman to get that distinction. And in Dublin at the time, without that kind of stamp of approval as professional, it was very, very hard to make a living as an artist. And she was coming from a position of wealth, which is probably why she could pursue a career as an artist. Is that part of it? It's sort of interesting because in a way she was brought up wealthy, but then by the time she's at marriageable age, her family lose everything. And that's what allows Mm. her to go unchaperoned to Paris with £30 to her name, um, which she borrowed from brothers of hers. And then she makes sort of this career ultimately from that very small chance of study, whereas men of her era would have had three, four, five years of study. And a lot of money behind them for that that period of study. I'll tweet one final image. I really love this portrait. Mm. Uh, It's of Kathleen Behan at RTE Arena, if you want to see that. This is a very modern piece. I can't see a date on it, but it it certainly has a whole new feel to it. Kathleen Behan, lovely shock of red hair and the eyes downward. And again, despite the fact that she's not looking at us, I feel I know this woman. Yes, uh, date-wise, it's around 1920s, 1930s. Ah, So it's quite late. Yes, so based on the age of uh, the sitter, ultimately. But the incredible thing about this painting, and I think it is possibly my favourite in the exhibition, is it sort of shows you what Sarah Purser could have done if she didn't have to paint portraits or be a professional artist all the time in that way. Because really, it's quite modern. It has a sort of sense of expressionism to it, the way that she uses colour, the looseness of the brushwork. It's very engaging. It's not meant as a portrait. It was sort of always given the nickname of just the sad girl. Um, and that's perhaps what draws us into it, too. So this this exhibition is very focused. It gives it does it, it lets us see another side of Sarah Parsons that perhaps we don't get to see too often. It does. It's still, as far as I'm concerned, small. And I think, you know, she really deserves to have a proper big exhibition because she was you know a founding member of Antor Glynna the Friends of the National Gallery you name it she was involved yeah. in it she helped get Charlemont House for Hugh Lane he was devoted to her she put on exhibitions of John Butler Yeats and, and Nathaniel Hone things that without her if that yeah. wasn't done the art world in Dublin would have been very different Well um, you've, you've placed the, you put down <laughs> the case for Sarah Purser in a big exhibition of her work but this one is worth seeing I think Oh absolutely yeah. Sarah Purser Private World is the title of the exhibition the Hugh Lane Room of the National Gallery runs through from until 25th of February of next year Jess Fahey uh, bringing us through that thanks for that Jess and that is our lot for this Tuesday evening Paula Shields and Ian Murphy Research Dolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Ashton Gruffery was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Reg Luby talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 John Creedon will be with you after the news